Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. We are continuing our study today in Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 8. In fact, we will finish Romans 8 today. It's taken us... uh, Three weeks to make our way through this, so a little bit more time on this chapter, but I trust as you consider the content of such a chapter, you understand why, and I do hope that it's been a blessing to you. And so I would invite you this morning to open your Bibles and turn once again to Romans chapter 8. If you need a Bible, there are some available on the back table. Um, Would love for you to follow along in his word uh, as we make our way through it here this morning. Romans chapter 8. Let me begin this morning by asking you, Who or what do you feel like is against you? What is it as you as you reflect on your life and and, and maybe it takes a maybe it takes a minute to really kind of consider some of the things that you're dealing with. Maybe for some of you it's 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 just right there. You know right now the thing that you're struggling with. What is it in your life that you feel is perhaps preventing you from doing what you feel called to do? or experiencing what you desire to experience, or achieving the goal that you desire to achieve. Maybe you find that in your life are tough circumstances, maybe a lack of resources, maybe there's sickness, maybe a difficult relationship, difficult people, circumstances that seem out of your control, yet they are preventing what it is that you desire. What is it that you feel like, and and maybe it's this statement that God, if only, and you fill in the blank for you and your life. Now let me ask you a different question, one that is rooted in truth, one that is from his word. If God is for us, thank you, Brenda, who can be against us? That's right. You see, sometimes in life, our problems our circumstances, they become like a hand in front of our face. When it's, when it's right here, it tends to be all that we can see. No matter how much we try, the circumstances, the difficulties that we're facing seem to be obstructing our vision of anything else, any other possibility. But God's Word, by the power of His Spirit, allows us to take a step back and gain some perspective. Suddenly, with the truth of God's Word, we move back from that problem a little bit and begin to see that there's something beyond it. We can almost begin to look around it. We can see that there's other things that are going on. It gives us much-needed perspective. This morning, we've come as far as verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, and it is here in these remaining verses of chapter 8 that I believe Paul has brought us to a place where we can gain some perspective. In fact, in my opinion, these verses serve as the culmination of all that Paul has shared so far, not just in Romans 8, but from the beginning of the letter. I believe it has been building to this place as he'll begin to shift gears a little bit as we make our way into chapter 9. And so it's it's in this place, in these remaining verses, that Paul brings to a conclusion much of what he has shared. And what is it that he's shared to this point? In an effort to summarize this morning, what Paul has shared with us from the beginning of the letter is that we as believers, because of Jesus and his work upon the cross, 
We who were once dead in sin, lost, guilty, deserving of judgment, are now alive. And not just alive, we are justified. We are reconciled. And not just that, but we have been freed from the law, adopted by God. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that is working within us, that has equipped us and empowered us. And we are called now to something new, called by a holy creator God able to then be used by Him in this life for His glory. And not just that, but we are awaiting the promise of an inheritance that is beyond measure, that will be fully realized when our glorification is complete and we are with Him forever in eternity. That's an incredible promise. This is what Paul has been speaking about. It's what he's been writing about. It's all coming to this point. I'm reminded as we think of gaining such perspective of a young boy. Now, this boy was not fond of drinking milk, just didn't like it. Yet, of course, he understood that it's drinking milk that makes young boys big and strong. So he suffered through it and downed nearly half a glass, at which point he proudly exclaimed to his father, Dad, I'm an optimist. My glass is half empty. His dad, of course, corrected him, saying, Son, I believe the optimist's phrase is, The glass is half full. To which his son confidently corrected his father, saying, Not if you don't like what's in the glass. You see, perspective can really change everything. And such is what Romans has given us, Christian. In a world where suffering is part of life, and the glass can in fact seem half empty, we can still be optimistic. As we considered in our study from last week, we know that glory is but a mile away. Paul in verse 18 writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And it's from there that Paul points us toward the hope that is our future with Jesus And he reminds us that in our difficulties, even the spirit within us is at work praying for us in ways that we could not. Praying according to God's perfect will. These things then lead Paul to declare an amazing perspective. An amazing perspective changing truth. In verse 28, that then builds to the rest of the chapter. He writes, and we know. That all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to his purpose. If you'd agree with me once more in prayer. Father, we once again, Lord, give you thanks for this day. And ask, Lord, that you'd bless our time of study as we look to your word. May it do exactly what we've considered even here now, Lord. May it change our perspective. May we, live, may we leave here today, Lord, with a right understanding of what it is that you've done, what you have for us, and what it means for us as we live this life for you. Give us a perspective, Lord, that's seen through the lens of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we look at this verse here this morning, there's a few points of clarification for us. First, does this say, does verse 28 say, some things or all things? All, right? You Greek scholars know that all is translated all, right? It's a very simple one. It's all things. It's not some things. It's not a few things. It's not just, oh, maybe these couple of things. No, what, what scripture here confidently declares is that God is working all things together for good 
Now, the second thing we should consider here this morning is, who is this promise for? Those who love God. That is a very important distinction. There are many promises in Scripture that could be categorized similarly, and sometimes it's worthy of making note. These promises today, what I declare in the message today from the Word of God, this is for believers. This is for those who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, who have come to saving faith in Jesus. There are those unbelievers who oftentimes will seek to lay hold of promises within Scripture that are not rightly theirs. But they can be when they give their lives to Christ. And so this is for those who love God. These are promises for believers. Third, whose purpose? His purpose. And that's another important one because oftentimes we can become confused and think it's about us, right? And so we need to understand that it's all things for those who love God according to his purposes, not our own. So then what we must understand from this verse, a relatively small verse yet packed with theological truth is that God is able to work all things in your life, Christian, together for good. Now you might be inclined to say, you mean suffering in my life? You mean the the things that have happened to me that were terrible? Things that I would long to forget? You mean God is using those things in my life for good? And I would say to you, yes. Now note this, as you think about some of those things in your life, that it does not mean that God caused those things. Certainly, that must be understood. God is not the author of evil. He does not create these evil things in your life. But lest you find yourself this little comfortable place then, in that, in that truth, please also understand another truth that is often uncomfortable and that a sovereign God has allowed it. He has allowed it in your life. But what that means is he can use it in your life. If you love him, and we love him only because he first loved us, so much of our understanding of these truths uh, would, would require us to also have an understanding of who God is. And so we'll consider some of that here this morning as I believe Paul really begins to lay that out for us. And so God can use these things in our lives. He can use suffering in our lives. He can use difficult circumstances in our lives. And the fact of the matter is, as I stand here today with the the benefit of perspective, looking out at all of you, there are some of you, of course, that I know. I know things that are going on in your lives. I know difficulties that you're facing. You shared those things. I know that amongst us this morning, here now, as well as in our first service, there's people who are dealing with an unexpected loss of a job. And they're wondering, Lord, what is this about? I didn't didn't see this coming, Lord. Everything seemed to be making sense. And now my life's disrupted. There are people dealing with health issues, struggling with, with, with how those health issues may affect the rest of their lives. There are people dealing with, with relationship issues that no doubt many of these issues, a result of, of sin, certainly in consequences of sin, yet in many cases to no fault of, of the individual. And, and we could easily go, God, why? Why am I dealing with this? The list could certainly go on and on and on of the things that each of you are facing. And for me, with the perspective of someone outside looking in, I can look at it and I can say, hey, God is up to something. But of course, then I need to be able to do the same thing in my own life. 
and reflect on circumstances in my life and go, God, this doesn't seem to be the plan. This isn't what I thought you called me to. This isn't what I thought you were doing in this situation. But to say, God, based off of your word, we are to trust that you're involved in these circumstances, working them together for good, doing wonderful things. Now, here's the thing. We don't always know what the good is. We don't always know what the good is that he's doing. And this is important because when we look at this verse, there are some who seek to claim this verse as some sort of prosperity gospel promise. Oh, God's just going to do all these wonderful things for me. Yes, he's doing wonderful things for you, but his promise, this promise is based off of his will, his purposes, his good. So often we think we know what the right good is. God, if you could just do this in my life, that would be great. I've got it all worked out. You could just, if you could just come along with my plan here, that'd be a wonderful thing. And, and certainly, we have an understanding in our own minds of what the right good is. And, and we often, maybe not if, if, if ever, think of, of suffering as a good thing, right? We look at suffering as, as bad. But the fact of the matter is, there are times when it's exactly what God has for us. And that it is a part of his good for us. And, and what it produces then is even better and will be in line with his perfect will and plan for our lives. And, and we struggle with this idea. But we ought not to if we have a proper understanding of who he is. And later on in Romans, a few chapters later, in Romans 11, in verses 33 through 36, Paul will write this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Do you know the mind of God? Are you his counselor? How often we pretend to. How often I've sought to be God's counselor. To tell him my plans. To tell him how he should do things. And you know, I think oftentimes we, we use the excuse when we think about God and we think about his sovereignty and we, and we wrestle with these, these truths that in fact suffering in our life can be used for his glory. We, we look at these things and we find ourselves extremely uh, uncomfortable with the idea that God could allow such suffering into the life of someone he loves. And so what we do in order to pacify our struggle is we, we, we use the excuse of a fallen world. We say, well, this, this right here and this, this thing that I'm experiencing is simply because we live in a world that's impacted by sin. And the fact of the matter is that's true. God is not the author of evil. God did not bring these things into the world. But if in fact he is a holy and righteous God who is seated on the throne, who is above all things, who is in fact sovereign, then there's something there that we need to reconcile. And oftentimes we may be seeking to ignore God's sovereignty in a way to make ourselves a bit more comfortable with the idea of suffering. But if God is who he says he is and who he must be based off of his word, then we must be willing to look at some of these difficulties in life and say, God, you have allowed this. You have allowed this into my life. And based off of what I know about you, then it must be that there's a purpose. 
that there's something to this. I think oftentimes when looking at this passage of Job, many of us are familiar with Job. In fact, we're often familiar with a, a, a chapter in the book of Job, chapter 38. It, it, it's here where uh, we're a good ways into the experience of Job at this point in, in Job 38. He's experienced great loss in his life. He's experienced great difficulties. Uh, as we know, Job was a, a righteous man uh, and, and God allowed difficulties to come in his life. And there was a purpose behind it. But Job, like anyone, like any of us, found himself at a place where he was struggling, struggling to make sense of it all. And there were questions, questions as he cried out to God. And it's in chapter 38 that God responds to Job. I must admit, when I read this chapter, I find it hard to even imagine this interaction and certainly the significance of such an encounter. As is written in chapter 38 of Job, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and, and note this, verses 2 and 3, Who is this? who darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. If there's ever a moment where someone were to be silenced before God, this would be one of those times. I love the translation that says, gird yourself like a man for I will question you. I mean, that's the moment when I go and curl up in the corner and suck my thumb, right? And just like, no thanks, we're good. I'm done here. But God continues. God continues and, and says in verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? And I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness and its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said this far you may come, but no farther, and here, you, here your proud waves must stop. God continues for the better part of three chapters here, laying before Job the fact that you know nothing. And, and, and these verses, as we read them, no differently than Job ought to humble us and to force us to realize we don't know and, and, to, and to recognize that He is so far beyond us and beyond our understanding. He's so much greater and so powerful. And I am not suggesting that there shouldn't be an effort to know more of Him. That would be entirely contrary to Scripture. We are called to know Him more and to seek Him more and to seek to understand Him more. But I often find it comical, this idea of, of even for myself, as I work towards degrees of theology. Do I really arrive at a place where, where someone says, you did it. Study of God is complete. Are you kidding me? We can't even begin to scratch the surface. And yet so often we go through this life and we look at our circumstances and we, without maybe saying it out loud, question God in a way that suggests we know better than you. But here's the amazing thing. 
That as much as we should consider the fact that God's ways are are not our ways, that just as the heavens, as Isaiah writes, are higher than the earth, so are His ways and His thoughts higher than ours. That yes, God is a God who is in the throne room of heaven, who is seated on the throne, that that I can't even begin to truly comprehend His goodness and, and how great He is and how powerful He is. He is still a God that knows you and meets you right where you are and understands you intimately, knows your mind and your heart better than you ever could. And Paul begins to help us to understand that and to see that as he writes in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God being all-knowing, that is, omniscient, he knew He knew you before he even formed you in the womb. And because he has perfect foreknowledge, he knows exactly what you need. And he knows exactly what to do so that you finish the race well. You see, a knowledge once again of who God is helps us to understand and appreciate this more. When we find ourselves looking to rejoice in the fact that, that yes, God is working all things together for good, but the implication of that means that difficult things in my life then may be from Him, it is important for us to understand, well, who is this God who has such authority in my life? I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to Psalm 139. I want us to consider that together here. The psalmist David here in Psalm 139 cries out to God and writes, beginning in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In just the first six verses of this psalm, what David has done with great eloquence is to proclaim the omniscience of God. What he has said is, God, you know everything. Now, this can be both encouraging to us and also a little scary. You ever found yourself thinking, man, I've I'm going to say this right now and praise the Lord, that Holy Spirit filter kicks in. (laughs) The words don't leave your mouth. What Scripture declares, however, is there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knew what you were going to say, Christian. (laughs) Now, of course, that can seem to us like, oh gosh, Lord, Lord, you, you know these things. But we know that in Christ, there is no condemnation. But to not be so foolish to know that he doesn't know your heart. That he doesn't search you and understand everything about you. David goes from here and continues on in verse 7 to speak of God's omnipresence. That He is everywhere. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. 
and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. He's all-knowing, he's all-present, and finally, as David continues, he's all-powerful. Verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me. O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And he concludes on that verse there. And the fact is, we don't know that way. We must have him to lead us in that way. And we can come to one who is all-knowing, who is all-present, who is all-powerful to lead us. But we must have a heart that recognizes, God's your way, your way is better. You know better. So you see, he knows so well. And in this knowledge and in his work, what he is doing is conforming you into his image. He's making you more like him. Verse 28 is encouraging enough on its own. But that it continues in verse 29 to tell us that, that as he's working these things together for good, what his good is, is making you more like him. So think about it for a moment then when difficulties come into our life and we ignore this truth, what we effectively proclaim to a loving father who he said we've surrendered our life to is, God, take this suffering out of my life. I don't want to be like Jesus. And I think for all of us, we would say, no, that's not what I want. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be made more like him. Well, what does scripture tell us? That to know him is to partake in his suffering. So then, this, this, this thing that's right in front of you, if we allow the Holy Spirit to move through his word, we can begin to take a step back and to go, wow, Lord, maybe this, this present suffering, maybe it's not to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. Maybe you're at work. Maybe, maybe Lord, you're doing a lot of other things that I've been unable to see. And, and maybe now I've got the strength to just say, okay, God, go ahead. My life's yours. Use this, Lord. So then, as it pertains to us and our salvation, Paul continues, verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, this is, by many commentators, known as the golden chain of salvation. It's these unbreakable links that go together in, in the process of our salvation. And what it ultimately tells us, without getting overly complicated here, is that God has done it all. The very fact that you, Christian, today can say, yes, I believe in Jesus, is because He has worked by His Spirit to call you unto repentance it's a work of him from, from start to finish. He does it. But just as this tells us that it's God who has, has done this, that it's God who has done the work, it's not just that. It's a promise that he will also finish the work. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 tells us being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is God's commitment as much as that Holy Spirit serves as a down payment and earnest. It seals us and he says what I've begun in you, I'll finish it. But know that along the way, 
I'm going to do what's necessary. I'm going to allow what's necessary in your life to prepare you for glory. And so God is at work in all of this, making us more like him, preparing us for eternity. And I must say, just for a moment here, as we consider these verses, because some of you may be expecting, or wondering rather, am I going to go into depth on some of these things? And, and no, I'm not. But what I will say is, sometimes these verses, the mention of predestination and election and, and the like, they make us a little uncomfortable. And depending on where you're at on the spectrum of, of, uh, of uh, Arminianism and, and an emphasis on free will versus Calvinism and, and an emphasis on election and predestination, here's the deal. I'm not a Calvinist and I'm not an Arminianist. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And I know that all of these things are spoken of in his word. And, and, and oftentimes they're like parallel tracks on a railroad track. They just run right next to each other. And sometimes you stand on the track and you look on down the way and you go, oh, look, a little bit further and it starts to come together. These things are going to make sense to me. And of course you make your way to it and you go, oh, man, they're still just running side by side. But the thing about those tracks are if you take one off or the other off, that train's going to derail. You need both to keep that thing moving along. And I think those who, 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 who give so much time to, to sort of trying to figure out or even to declare with confidence, I know how all of this stuff works, you're a fool. Because now you've declared something contrary to Scripture and that you've figured out His ways. And Scripture has clearly told us that they're past finding out. What we are to do is to look at it and to say, God, both of these things are there. And so I know that you have had a hand in my salvation, that I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't know you if it wasn't for you and the fact that you called me and that you've been at work in my life before I even had breath. But I know also that I have a responsibility to surrender my life to you. Both of those things are there. So don't get hung up on what you don't know and what you don't know the answer to. Get hung up on what you do know and what scripture proclaims clearly to us. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Paul here is going, what, what, what now? In light of everything I've shared with you, Paul says, in everything that I've written to you from the very beginning, we've come to this place. What now is the answer? If God is for us, who can be against us? So much time spent on things we cannot answer, trying to know the mind of God and his ways and why certain things happen and others don't. But then in God's word is plainly declared such things as this and oftentimes we overlook it. Let me read it again, Christian. If God is for us, and rightly stated here, since God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that question is nobody. Nobody. Can I get an amen on that? These are those verses 28, 31, these are those verses that when you are in your moments of difficult trial, Christian, look to these passages of Scripture. Look to them for hope. Look to them for reminders. Look to them for confidence. To know, God, I love you. God, I am with you. And so I know nobody can be against me. Why? Because verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Which is the greater sacrifice? For God to give of abundant resources or for him to sacrifice his one and only begotten son? Which is the greater sacrifice? His son. Anyone knows that answer? It's his son. And so the implication then is he's already done that. He's already done the hard thing. So why would he not give you everything else that comes with it? The answer is, he has. It's as if I were to come to you and say, 
guess what? I am just going to bless your socks off today. You know what? I bought you a house. I know you've been wanting a house. I know you've been needing a house. And I know you had all these dreams for everything that this house was going to be and all that you could do in it. And it's all coming true. It's all there. It's perfect. And it's paid for. And it's tax-free. Here you go. Here's the house. Oh, but the doors are locked and you're not getting the key. Well, that'd just be cruel. That'd just be mean. That's not how God operates. That's silly. No, what his word tells us, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, his divine power has given to us how many things? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And here's the wonderful truth about that truth. He didn't say his divine power will give you these things when you're in glory. Good luck getting there. No, it says he has. He has given you all things Translated differently, you've already got everything you need. Praise God. You have everything you need for life and godliness. So then, in the knowledge of that, because of that, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So when Satan, the accuser, through any number of channels, brings to you a lie about who you are, what you're not, what, you, what you've been and how you can't possibly serve Christ or you can't do this or you can't do that. The way the enemy does is he speaks these lies into our lives. He said, who can bring a charge against me? God has justified me. Yeah, that Satan, that sin that you keep reminding me of, it's in my past. It's done. It's gone. Who is he who condemns? Verse 34. Who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And so Satan not only speaks lies into your life, but then he brings condemnation against you. But God says, who can condemn? And the answer, once again, is no one. Why? Because Christ already died. He already did it. He said, it's finished. He did the work. And furthermore, and this is not to be forgotten, this cannot be overstated. And if you feel like I'm a broken record, praise the Lord. He is praying for you. He is praying for you, Christian. The Holy Spirit within us, Paul's already mentioned this, with groanings which cannot be uttered, is interceding on your behalf. I believe in the same pattern in which we pray, the Spirit is interceding on the merits of and through the Son, Jesus Christ, to the Father. And so what that means is the Spirit within you and Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father is praying for you. This is incredible. Lewis Burkhoff writes this. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. He prayed as much to his father there in the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus in John 17. And he prayed for you there. If you want to know a little bit about how Jesus has prayed for you, go read that chapter. Praying that you would be where he is. You'd be with him. And you ever have those days, you find yourself, somebody says, well, how was your day? How'd it go today? You say, well, by the grace of God, <laughs> I got through it. God seemed to work despite me. There's some truth to that. Because the God who knows you, 
who searches your heart, who knows that word before it even comes off of your tongue. And I don't know exactly how Jesus is praying in all these different ways. I think sometimes it's like, Father, don't let him say that. <laughs> Shut this man up for a moment. <laughs> we need that in ways that we don't even know how, in ways that we don't pray. And think of God praying for you by name. Then not give you confidence. That's what's happening. So then, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who then, in light of these things, who's going to separate you? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The New Living Translation paraphrases it this way. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, nothing. Once again, if we have a right understanding of who God is, the character of God, then the answer would absolutely with confidence be nobody. Nobody can do that. Now, Christian, I don't know how often you think in this way that maybe God has left you. Maybe God doesn't love you. That maybe the circumstances that you're facing in your life are evidence that, that, that you sort of uh, outworn your welcome. Perhaps the, the thought doesn't cross your mind all that often. But, but I wonder how often, in effect, we allow our circumstances, even without saying these things, to simply become bigger than what they are. And, and even though we may not declare, oh, God must not love me anymore, we act as if he doesn't. We look at our circumstances as if he's left us. And we fail to consider that God is at work in them. And that in, in fact the difficulty of the moment may actually be an even greater demonstration of his love and care for us. And the thing is sadly as we read through these things. As we think about uh, uh, tribulation and distress. We may say yeah I've, I've experienced some of that. And then we come to things like persecution and famine. Nakedness, peril, sword. And as we look at some of these things, I think some of them are so foreign to us that we really, we really don't know how to relate to some aspects of this passage. And this is specific for the American church. We are so, uh, in this land of plenty, we are really so poor in many respects, so disadvantaged. And it doesn't mean that these promises are not ours, but there is an aspect that for us, I think, to really look to God and just say, God, I don't know this. And, and, and maybe there's part of me that says, God, I don't want to know this, but maybe I need to. We're going to start to close here. If you'll indulge me for a moment. This past week, I had the opportunity to, to, to meet with a few brothers um, for lunch on Wednesday. There was a gentleman in town uh, from South Sudan. And I, I spent, albeit brief time in South Sudan myself, as well as in Uganda and Ethiopia. And I was excited to be able to go and have lunch with him and hear about his ministry and what the Lord was doing in his life. And as I suspected, uh, there was something that was accomplished on Wednesday that can only be accomplished when you're in the presence of such an individual that truly was accomplished in my life the first time that I went to Africa. When I encountered believers whose faith was far different than my own and far different than anything I'd ever encountered before. And I don't say it as a way of demeaning any of our faith, but the fact of the matter is we have to sometimes be honest and just say, Lord, we don't truly get this. 
As this man sat down and he told me about his life growing up in South Sudan and the number of times he traversed the border between South Sudan and Uganda. Uh, Every time because he was on the run and he was a refugee and they would just go back and forth depending on whether it was the LRA in northern Uganda that was pushing them across or the the northern Sudanese army that that was coming and wreaking havoc on South Sudan. And he began to tell, tell of, of those of us that were there of his experience and his, and his life and, and how the Lord got a hold of his heart and, and how even in the midst of such suffering, there was joy and, and, and a love for the Lord and a desire to serve him. And, and of course, I'm, I'll skip over many of the details that were shared, but, but, but ultimately there was a point when God used him to, to basically birth a school to begin discipling young men into the pastorate. But not just so that they could be pastors and, and, and pastor a, uh, just a, a church that was you know, all about fellowship and, and just the joy of coming together. But, but no, you're going to learn how to be a pastor and you're going to leave and you're going to go back to that place where you are not wanted, where your life is being threatened, where you are going to be told, not with veiled threats, but with real threats, I'm going to kill you and you're going to go back and you're going to bring the gospel. And so these men, and one in particular, he was ready to go. And, and even his teachers, even David, who I was speaking with on Wednesday, said, I don't know if you should go. And he said, I've got to go. He said, I can't sit here anymore and learn any more about the Bible when people are dying. And they don't know Jesus. And so he said, I'm going. And so he went back into Khartoum, which was at the time uh, Muslim occupied, uh, still very much is today. However, Christianity is no longer illegal there, though very much persecution is still heavy. And so at the time it was illegal and he went in. And, and he was there for a long period of time without them hearing from him. And eventually they get a call and they said, what's up? And he says, you got to get me out of here now. It's time to go. And I think to some degree, and certainly we were led to sort of feel like, okay, he just sort of, he learned his lesson, shouldn't have gone in there. No, when they went to get him and they worked him out, he came out with 30 new pastors who were ready to get trained up, who then went back in. And the next time those 30 pastors went in, they were all arrested and imprisoned. And they spent months upon months in prison and they were tortured daily. Every day they would come to their cell, they would get them, they would lead them to the room to be tortured. And they would tell them before they began the torture, they would say, all you have to do right now is renounce your faith and you walk out. And every day these men would say, no. And they would be tortured day after day. Three of those men finally succumbed to the torture. They didn't come back. And those men have planted more churches and more churches and more churches and more churches. And I look at this and I say, God, I don't know this. When your word says, as it is written, verse 36, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Lord, I don't know it. And I don't know that I need to stand here today or any one of you and feel a sense of shame over it unless, unless the Holy Spirit makes it clear as is, at least to me, and I'll speak only on my behalf. That so much of what we've been seeking after and what we've been supposedly fighting for and so much of what we talk about ad nauseum these days in our country is just an attempt to try and maintain some sort of heaven on earth instead of being willing to go, Lord, what do you want to do? How are you moving? How are you working? You know, for the church in America, the church, generally speaking, and this would include our local representation of it here, the greatest growth that we've seen in recent history has come in the last year and a half. You think that's a coincidence? And so we've got to be willing to look at this and to go, God, what are you up to? Not God, make it go away. Not God, spare us from it. But God, what are you doing? We need to get a lot better at not saying God, why, but saying God, what? What are you doing, Lord? Verse 37, 
Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Christian, do you know this? Do you, do you live like this? This here, this says we are more than conquerors. What this means, if we were to sort of translate it literally, that you are super conquerors, Christian. That ought to make you feel pretty cool. Super conquerors. I don't know about any of you, but I, I, I've long dreamed of being a superhero. I mean, as a little kid, what kid doesn't look at Marvel or DC or whoever, you, whichever, you know, whichever way you go, and go, this is cool. Well, you are. You're more than that. Anything that we're able to imagine and anything we've seen as far as what a hero is concerned on this earth, we're more than that through him who loved us. And so it's not about us, it's about him and it's about what he's done. And so we can say that we're more than conquerors. Why? Because there's, there's life beyond death. Because there's an eternal mission. Because it's for a glory that's not our own. Because it's a rooted in a love that we cannot demonstrate. That's why it's more. There's a very famous story about John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople. I'll close uh, on this. He's facing persecution at the hands of the emperor and the, emperor and the empress um, in the Byzantine Empire in the 5th century. And uh, the empress threatens Chrysostom with banishment, and, and, and the conversation is recorded as such. He, he says, you cannot banish me, for this world belongs to my father. But I will kill you, the empress said. No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ. I will take away your treasures then. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I will drive you away from your friends and you have no one left. She responded, no, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Super conquerors. So Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Paul, shifting from the material and the physical to the supernatural, says there's nothing that can separate us. And so I would just encourage you today with two things. Christian, face trials and difficulties, no matter the type, with the confidence that God is at work, using them for your ultimate good and making you more like him. And note that it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so as you're facing these things, know that you're not alone. And secondly, allow these truths to cause you to live each day as a super conqueror. Let's live life on mission, to be mission-minded, to be bold, to not fear, to remember that he's always with you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for our time together here this morning. We pray, Lord, that it's been pleasing to you. And Lord, we ask that once again by your spirit, you'd do this necessary work in our hearts, Lord. Help us to see with gospel perspective, Lord, what it is that we have in you and how, Lord, we can live our life in this time between your work on the cross and when you bring us into glory. We love you, Lord, and praise you. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.